SpongeBob, Shrek, The Daily Show, Sailor Moon, Boy Bands, Sports Enthusiasts, Sherlock Holmes, Barbie, Britney Spears, Hello Kitty, Jandek, Comic Books, Superheroes, Buffy. These are just some of the many, many topics I cover on my podcast, How to Stand, a show about both specific fandoms and just pop culture, internet culture, internet trends overall. Check out How to Stand in the same feed as my other podcast, 17 Karat K-Pop, wherever you get your podcasts. And I'm an independent creator, and so please spread the word about the show. There's an episode for every interest, and I really do appreciate the support spreading the word. You can also find out more info at my site, 17 karatkpopweeblycom Thanks so much. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to How to Stand. Today, something a bit different. Not the fans, but the artists who have scammed them over, messed with them, and what these scammer behaviors have looked like. And I'll get to the broader takeaways here at the end as always. But first, let's just dive right in. The first person we're going to talk about today, Uba Butler. And yes, people ask him all the time if he was named after Uber. He was not. Uba Butler is a filmmaker, an author, and a massive prankster called the Banksy of Journalism by the BBC. He used to be just kind of a, an obscure freelance writer, but he gained attention, without people realizing it, as Martin Davey, rock band manager extraordinaire, as a teen. And he used his fake band manager status as a teen to book venues. He fittingly joined Catfish UK in 2021, and he wrote a book, How to BS Your Way to Number One, An Unorthodox Guide to 21st Century Success which topped the LA Times bestseller list. He intentionally kept this just 76 pages. He's aware of short attention spans nowadays. And he included advice he thought would make sense, be extra relevant in this century, like gamifying your goals, extending this, what he called a honeymoon period towards what you're doing. Basically, he talks about keeping your passion alive. He is so fascinating, and his pranks are so just incredible. I have to share five of them. Not one, not two, five of them. The first one, which gained super global attention, the fake restaurant. He spent about six months having his friends write tons of good reviews for a restaurant he made up on TripAdvisor, the Shed at Dulwich. He created a TripAdvisor page for it and just turned random objects into what looked like plates of food. So it was not just a prank as in, these reviews are for a fake place, but the food isn't even real in the pictures. He was patient for six months, letting these reviews roll in and the number on TripAdvisor rising. It then became the number one restaurant in London on TripAdvisor. And for context, the number of total restaurants in London on TripAdvisor at the time was 18,149. It reached number one on the 1st, November 1st, 2017. This led to people wanting to go there and calling the shed, which was really just him in his burner phone. He was getting so many calls all the time for reservations because of the buzz that the fake buzz created. The real buzz created by fake buzz. He also kept the buzz going because when people called for reservations, he said, sorry, we're booked. All reservation slots for now, full. Upping the intrigue even more. He did eventually reveal it was all fake, but did have, just for show, a one-night-only opening, where he served ten different guests, he had a friend pose as a snooty waitress, they put on this faux-fancy air, microwave meals, free of charge. Then a documentary was made called How to Become TripAdvisor's Number One Fake Restaurant. There was a Japanese production company that even dedicated an hour-long special to this. 
In an interview, Butler said, quote, I had PR companies wanting to represent me for reduced rates. Companies who make in-flight videos to advertise London wanted to come and film there. There were hundreds and hundreds of minor celebrities, influencers, people wanting to eat there, and it was a complete fiction. The reason they wanted to eat there was because they were told they couldn't eat there, unquote. This was actually an incident used in Singapore's parliament when they gave a presentation about misinformation. Prank 2, he sent fake people, fake Uba butlers, to do his press run for his BS stuff. He sent fake versions of himself to promote the book about fakery, the fake restaurant, whatever. He sent a picture of himself to every casting director in town and got tons of promising responses. The requirements to play his lookalike obviously embody his character well, but also be ready to lie on TV and be beach blonde. Across six weeks, fake Ubas traveled to India, Bulgaria, Australia. One of the Uba lookalikes, Peter Yoon, a fellow internet prankster, led this interview where I guess he was too pretentious because a friend's mom then texted him, you've gone posh. This guy actually, he has a whole side story too, because he was fired from the Times. He was obtaining access to vacations, concerts, other perks under false pretenses. He also once replaced a byline with his. It was a whole thing. Anyway, one newscast actually cut the Uba interview entirely. But just as they were nail-biting thinking, oh my gosh, we were found out, it turns out they just found the responses not interesting enough. So the interview was cut. So no, they didn't realize it was a fake Uba. They just thought, this guy's pretty bland. The next thought I guess should have been though, he doesn't even sound like he knows his own story. It was really interesting that he confessed to this when reached for comment by The Guardian. And the real Uba said, quote, They all asked me the exact same questions. I'm not famous. What I did is famous. And it was interesting to remove me from that process, unquote. And it's true. The fakeins did get pretty good reviews, particularly rave reviews in Bulgaria for some reason. Prank 3. He got front row access to Paris Fashion Week with a fake clothing brand. June 2018, he took on the persona of Giorgio Peviani, a fake person. But soon enough, the fake buzz created real buzz, and Giorgio had a whole Google history, even products with placement on Amazon, social media reviews. He then made bank with this fake persona, making a short film about him, and it premiered at the LA Film Fest. The short film now has reached over 30 million views. Prank 4? He had a Norwegian lookalike pretend to be him to accept an award he got for his fakery. So he sent a fake for this to get the Content Creator of the Year award. He actually ordered the stand-in to not say a word. Just accept your award and get off the stage. He totally did not listen in his clear Norwegian accent was part of the speech. He also messed with the award show in 2019 at the Webby Awards, getting an AI to write his whole speech. And lastly, this wasn't really a scam, but just a really interesting backstory. He wanted to see what's harder to sell, door-to-door, religion or music. Part 1, he embedded with this group of Jehovah's Witnesses to learn from them. He called them, quote, the kind of analog vinyl heads of the spiritual world, unquote. He found out while attending this training that the average amount of meaningful conversations the Jehovah's Witnesses ended up having door-to-door roughly estimated at six or seven out of every 100 doors they knocked. 
So he scaled down this fraction and decided, well, I can probably sell six or seven out of a hundred CD copies door to door. Six or seven CDs, a hundred doors, I can do that. So he tried to sell door to door Young Chasers, an album by Circle Waves, and copies of Emotion from Carly Rae Jepsen, which he claimed sold, quote, almost hilariously badly in the UK, despite it spawning a number one single, unquote. Day one, three F offs. 12 out of 25 doors unanswered, zero sales, and four times he saw the lights go out after knocking. He called the day, quote, a fever dream of disgusted glances, shaking heads, and slammed doors. The British public aren't just disinterested in music CDs, they want a restraining order put on them, unquote. Day two, two album sales, nine out of 25 doors unanswered, but one woman tried to bat him away with a broom. Day three, back to zero sales, 14 out of 25 doors unanswered, two people shaking curtains angrily, and one man yelling at him, accusing him of seeing the no salespeople sign and hiding it. Day four, this four-day adventure, he summed up with, quote, 40 slammed hinges, a couple of threats to call the police, a baker's dozen of FUs, and the weight of the music world on my shoulders, unquote. He found out that a lot of people were going to try to help him. They would say, what do you want me to sign? What do you want me to say? They would be willing to sign a petition or talk to him, but that did not translate into sales. He apparently, on the last day of this, found out he wasn't dressed right for the occasion and was told by one guy who answered the door, you're dressed way too formally for this to be taken seriously. So read into that what you will. Apparently, yes, it's harder to sell music than religion. Obviously, that discounts a host of different variables, but I'm not going to do a well-actually scrutinizing his research methods, but I digress. Let's move on to talking about Kayla Massa, an influencer and YouTuber from New Jersey. This 22-year-old developed a following over her videos, hair tutorials, blogs, a variety. She gathered over 107,000 YouTube subscribers and over 330,000 Instagram followers. But who knew they would end up getting scammed out of over $1.5 million? Starting in February 2020, she used Instagram stories to post pictures of money, bank balances, all sorts of money and proof that you can get that money too if you follow her orders. Whenever you messaged her saying, hey, I'm inquiring about that Instagram story, she would explain the situation, that she needed to borrow their account. So if they let her borrow their bank account for a short period of time, she would pay them up to 5k, more money the longer they let her use their account. Basically, she was explaining money laundering for the Instagram age. After the money was paid back, the banks would catch on to the fraud, take the money back out of the victim's account, and then leave the victims with overdrawn debt. By then, she had blocked their numbers and any ability to contact her. Many victims of the scam were super young, some minors, one account even affiliated with a school email. She was thought to have scammed over 45 people. One victim told police she had met up with Massa to get the PIN info and login info, saying that she needed to borrow the account for a tax write-off for a friend's clothing line. The money order funds were credited to this victim's account. Three purchases were made. Then the bank caught on to the fraud, recalled the money, but now the victim could not reach back out to her. A different victim came forward and reported Massa needed to use their account and decided they would list this victim on her payroll to make up for it. Then four orders were deposited into the victim's account, then the money got removed, leaving them with an overdrawn account of nearly 4k. 
She also apparently had a habit of scamming small businesses, writing fake checks in their names, scouring Facebook and Snapchat for those victims. When one victim threatened to call the cops, she said, quote, do what you gotta do, unquote. The authorities did catch up to her. July 2018, the Postal Service had discovered there was a theft from Berlin, the Berlin in New Jersey. The post office there had 53 blank money orders, all missing key details and having the wrong font. Very suspicious. And then years later, they find out about this is going on. They found Masa driving the car they had been on the lookout for, a Nissan with 39 checks in it at the time, all made out to someone named Keith Williams, who was not in that car at the time. In the car also, they found so much else incriminating stuff, money orders, debit cards with names of people who weren't in that car. Then the local dealership found 679 fraudulent checks and provided the list to investigators. It totaled up to over $128,000. One by one, authorities started reaching out to the names on the list and kept hearing the same story about how they too had been scammed by her. During this investigation, a Nissan dealership was victim to check fraud of close to 14k, and 16 other auto shops and car dealerships in the area were also falling victim to scams. Massa officially got really, really in trouble after CCTV footage found her making those withdrawals and depositing fake checks. She also was kind of sloppy in some ways, didn't hide her trail. She once issued a money order with her sister's name, her sister's real name. She also made fraudulent checks deposited into her own mother's account. In total, from May 2018 to February 2020, already over 16,000 fraudulent or counterfeit checks were deposited, and there were over 650 counterfeit or stolen money orders. Some victims' accounts were closed, written off as losses, long-term trouble for them. This is a movie right here. Here are the 10 arrests making up the colorful cast in this story. Masa, her boyfriend, her sister's boyfriend, her sister, a former Nissan employee, a wannabe rapper, YC Woody, and three others. Moving on to something arguably less nefarious, Thomas Muscatello. But he went by Thomas J. Mace Arthur Mills, which he eventually revealed were a combination of parts of names of friends and relatives he put together. This guy was considered a royal expert. All things royal families he would cover for TV, like the 2018 royal wedding, other huge events. He's also really cashed in, not with TV appearances, but also with royal-themed crypto, royal coin he created. He also released a book of cocktail recipes called Their Majesty's Mixes, When They Rain, They Pour. He also has edited the Crown and Country magazine. He claimed to run the Center for British Royal Studies, which either does not exist or has a next-to-non-existent digital presence. He's known as the Brit in the circle. As a Brit, he'll give his take on royal events. You probably know how this ends up. Turns out, nope, he's not British. He's an Italian-American from upstate New York. He just, from a very early age, did have an obsession with all things British royals. He declined to clarify where he lives now and his backstory, really, his true backstory, when questioned once the truth was out. But he says he really does just have a passion for talking about the royals. He even said he had just developed a bit of a British accent organically over time and started ending conversations now with God Save the Queen. He even made an agreement with two elderly British people that he could refer to them as grandma and grandpa if need be. 
As funny as this story might seem, it does have more serious undertones because his royal advice was taken quite seriously. He actually even advised the Serbian royal family during a deposition. He also helped organize an anti-cutter conference in London in 2017 that some activists labeled a lobbying effort for a Middle East coup. It was a very politically questionable choice that drew a lot of ire. The Wall Street Journal broke the story about him not being who he said he was, and his response was, quote, The Wall Street Journal breached journalistic trust, omitted truths, and missold what the initial interview was for. Many of the facts in the article are inaccurate, and the Wall Street Journal itself was given many opportunities to ensure that the article was published with the most accurate information available. The Wall Street Journal chose not to adhere to the facts or their integrity, unquote. Let's move on to some influencers. Brittany Dawn Davis, a fitness star. She offered her followers personalized diet and exercise plans and $300 coaching sessions. This was back in 2018. There was also a complimentary ebook offer that never came to fruition. Her fans, who invested so much money in these plans, got to talking and realized they were getting the same plans. This was not personalized at all. In fact, the plans she was giving were pretty generic and may not have even been created by her in the first place. The public pressure did force her to come clean, and she went to YouTube to issue an apology video, which did not include an offer of a refund. Aggie Lal, a travel influencer. Similarly, back in 2018, she offered her followers a course on how to grow their Instagram followings. That one was nearly $500. Every time she was set to start a session for these life hacks, it was like a master class, but taught by an influencer. She never delivered. She just kept canceling class because of Wi-Fi issues, claims of health issues. She didn't totally skirt responsibility, but the sessions that did not get canceled, participants in the sessions that did happen came away less than impressed and said it kind of sounded like her advice revolved around promoting her stuff Basically, she was, they say she was cloaking her, converting them into salespeople for her own brand, marketing that instead as helping you personally. Couple, I'm going to talk about really briefly because they have been extensively covered in the news already. One, of course, I have to talk about Caroline Calloway for a second, although that story seems to have been reported on to death, but it is quite fascinating. Back in 2019, she decided to host these creativity workshops, like an influencer meet and greet meets writing workshop meets just a coaching session in a group, kind of like a retreat, but shorter. Someone live tweeted, seeing outside her house, what was happening. Trucks full of mason jars and other supplies going to Caroline's house. Caroline being really overwhelmed because visually she did not picture that amount of mason jars and stuff being that extreme in real life. But it was massive, the amounts getting dumped at her house. So there was a lot going on, posting through it about, oh my gosh, here is how in real time overwhelming it can be to pull this off. When she had her sessions, some people walked away way less than impressed. They say it was cheap, did not deserve that amount of money, did not meet expectations. She has since capitalized on this attention, though, bringing attention to her paintings in profiles of her since this happened. And she created a revised version of the workshop, The Scam. That's the title. Chef Pie, P-I-I, a private chef from Miami, also known as Pink Sauce Girl. 
She started marketing this exclusive pink sauce to her followers. The color and texture seem to vary widely based on people trying to mimic the recipe with mixed results. The ingredients have confused some people because apparently it's better if you use mayo instead of milk instead of vice versa, which is a huge difference. Things like that. Substitutes are quite varied and change the outcome. So this mystery sauce that is kind of whatever you want it to be. The official kind though, in the bottle she sends people, people say it kind of tastes like ranch, only maybe a little different. But part of the appeal of why people are paying so much for these bottles is because of that intrigue, the curiosity of what the heck is this, what does it taste like. Kind of like with Uba Butler's fake restaurant. Fake hype turned into real hype. A weird product that may just be ranch with food coloring turned into people using a DIY formula to make this product for themselves. A host of red flags came about to people who ordered this. One being that they got it in the mail. In shoddy packaging, this refrigerated item was sent to them. After spending weeks in the mail. So, yeah, not exactly safe to eat after that. Plus, the nutrition labels misspelled vinegar and had some other big errors that made people think, there's no way, this is sloppy. People also took issue with her videos saying that her product was not FDA approved, but it was going through the steps for that. But then she kind of worded it weirdly, like, we will start going through the steps for that. So at first it sounded like, we're getting FDA approval, we're just not there yet, versus we haven't even started in the same sentence. Very odd sentence, it rambled. Very weird, confusing. But I will say, I do think people are focusing too much on that aspect. Because actually, she's right. They're kind of making fun of her, like, why is she saying food doesn't need FDA approval? It's right there in the name, Food and Drug Administration. But she's actually right. You don't have to get FDA approval to sell something like her pink sauce. So people think it's a shady product because it doesn't have FDA approval, but technically her business is not Look, it's a long story, a rant for another day. But the point is people don't trust this, but they're still fascinated by it. Upon the backlash, which she seems to take in stride, this company issued a statement that I don't feel like reading because it is full of grammatical errors that are driving me up a wall because I'm such a nerd, but it did not instill trust in the company for sure. Gwen Shamblin, the focus of a new HBO show, very fascinating story. I will try to focus on more of who she was than specifically what she was selling. I don't want to trigger fellow eating disorder survivors, but she was really promoting some dangerous stuff. Although in some ways she promoted good stuff, the concept of intuitive eating as opposed to something else, but look, she went about it all wrong and it really damaged mentally people. This weight loss workshop was just really damaging, mentally and physically for these people. And just not new. What she was selling was around for hundreds of years. She just renamed it in her image. She wasn't a total fake, though. She did have a degree in dietetics and a master's in food and nutrition. She was a registered dietitian, used to work at Memphis State, spent five years working for Texas's Department of Health. What made her seem like she was scamming people was that her company, this Way Down Workshop, promoted itself under the guise of religion, doing what the Lord wants you to do. And that became what led her to the Remnant Fellowship. Basically, she started her own church, her own weight loss church, basically. So she combined a workshop with religion, and her religious views were called out as disingenuous. 
put into question how much she truly knew about the religion she claimed to love so much and used to sell this workshop. In 1978, Gwen married David Shamblin, and they were together for 40 years. He was front and center, a big face of the company at first, and she eventually declared him as her personal pastor and the, quote, leading shepherd of Remnant Fellowship. Remnant Fellowship got started with just 80 members, most of them just employees. Her first big consultation event took place in a Memphis Mall in 1980, and the Way Down program officially launched in 86. She moved the program in the 90s to a Baptist church near Memphis. This program now included 12-week seminars and a series of audio and videotapes Gwen narrated. By 94, her program had spread to around 600 churches across 35 states. Early 95, it had spread to over 1,000 churches in 49 states and also Canada. By mid-96, around 50,000 churches, eight in Britain, just 10% locally. By 96, the Way Down Workshop had a 40-member staff, which is half the amount of full participants they had in the early days. That's also the year she started hosting Desert Oasis, this annual convention. Her book, The Way Down Diet, came out in 97, sold over a million copies, and got a huge round of press from appearances on the Tyra Banks show and all sorts of other programs. Truly, the explosive growth of her program continued throughout the 90s, and thousands of her programs were now being taught, sometimes in followers' homes, homeschool style, most often in churches. She also started a different seminar, Exodus Out of Egypt, that was soon held across 70 countries. Suspicions were raised, though, about how much Gwen truly knew about the religion she claimed was her foundation and guiding light. In 98, people got suspicious. They thought her messages were now taking a darker, more intense turn, and maybe that was the catalyst for cult accusations. They believed she had started warping sermons to meet her own ideals. In the summer of 2000, she got so, so much backlash to an email she wrote defending the Trinity in a way that just did not go along with what all these religious scholars and believers said the Trinity is about. She would further get blowback for other comments that seemed to equate herself to religious deities. The fall of 2003 could have indicated the early fall of this church, although it was the year construction on the Remnant Church was officially done. It was also the year of a harrowing story. A young boy in the care of remnant follower parents was fatally struck. Those parents killed their kid using the type of severe physical punishment Gwen endorsed. This couple was sentenced to life plus 30 years in 2007 in their 8-year-old's death. Their legal defense? Paid for by the church. In 2010, Gwen bought a $2 million beach house. 2018, she married Joe Lara, a Tarzan and Manhattan actor, randomly. <laughs> her followers were confused about her true religious values because she preached against divorce and was now remarried. People also thought it was odd because David before had seemed like a natural face for this brand. Joe seemed to be more forcefully trying to get out front. He was also at the time trying to get a singing career going and seemed to really like the attention he got from being with Gwen. This financial legal battle ensued in 2018. Less than two months before remarrying, Gwen entered a divorce agreement with David. 
that she hadn't been keen on. But she suddenly said, you know what, fine, and agreed to the agreement because David's attorneys threatened to release info about Remnant's finances. They wanted to subpoena Remnant to make their payment and benefits transparent and make known who was under NDAs. In the settlement, which required divvying up over $20 million worth of property, 18 pieces, Gwen got to keep a nearly $2 million fancy beach house in this idyllic community that was referred to as Destiny by the Sea. She also got to keep Ashlawn, a $7 million property that was a pre-Civil War plantation home. Soon after remarrying, real estate holdings started being transferred under the names of different people instead of under Remnant's name, allowing the identities to stay secret. Gwen and some of her followers were in a plane that crashed, killing them. May 2021. It crashed soon after takeoff in Percy Priest Lake in Tennessee. The National Transportation Safety Board report said the weather had been overcast and the pilot had quickly stopped responding to air traffic control directions. The documentary would also reveal the pilot did not exactly have up-to-date credentials. Gwen's adult children, Michael and Elizabeth, took over the church. HBO, for the docuseries, did try to get comment and cooperation from Remnant, and this text appears on the screen during the series. Quote, the producers initially made contact with Remnant Fellowship, its leaders and ex-leaders, inviting them numerous times over the course of eight months to respond directly to the various allegations made by interviewees during the course of filming. Two weeks before the documentary series was due to air, the church finally issued a formal statement. Remnant Fellowship categorically denies the absurd defamatory statements and accusations made in this documentary. Our Christian beliefs are Bible-based, and our church is based on love, care, mercy, and kindness. Children are happy and healthy, being raised with the most love, care, support, and protection imaginable. But we know that there is no one message that can please everyone. As any other church, Remnant Fellowship operates under all U.S. guidelines and laws, unquote. The two biggest red flags to followers besides the mental harm of the diet she was promoting, the use of religion to draw people to her product and services, that email basically saying the Trinity doesn't matter and doesn't mean what you think it does, and this group, Women of Faith, were so angry they took off her name from their website. Some even left the church completely over these remarks. They were viewed as a bombshell, terrible interpretation. But she was on the defensive and called this a witch hunt. But a former employee said, quote, She told me I couldn't embrace the message of grace, and then she fired me. Anyone who leaves the church is labeled a devil. She orders them not to speak or fellowship with those who leave. There is a spirit of fear, unquote. This iron grip under which she led this group was also drawing a lot of critics because of the lack of transparency about where Klein's money was going while she lived in a mansion. Gary Blackburn, a lawyer, sued Gwen on behalf of clients claiming wrongful termination, being fired after refusing to fully leave their old churches behind. Accusers say she wanted them and their wallets entirely devoted to her. But she claimed to Larry King in 98, quote, This money, half of it goes to the government, the other half goes to keep it going so that someone else can be helped, unquote. She made comments in her video series that appeared quite ironic, like, quote, Most of the world has abandoned true religion and are now converts to building up their own pocketbooks. Yet God is a God of justice and he will not be mocked, unquote. 
She also said, quote, if you cling to your money, you're going to lose it. But if you give it up, you'll find it again, unquote. That, if money comes to you, it was meant to be speech, was part of a nine-week video series on greed that she was working on at the time of her death, in which she encouraged her followers to part with all their money to learn a lesson. One of her daughters, Elizabeth, said in 2017, quote, she practically handed mine and Michael's inheritance away, unquote, in a News Channel 5 investigation revealed that she left nothing in her will to Remnant. She left it all to David and her kids listed as successors, meaning that with Tennessee law, this meant post-divorce, everything would automatically go to the successors. Remnant Fellowship issued a statement saying, quote, In regards to Gwen's estate, Gwen, Michael, and Elizabeth decided almost two decades ago to give approximately $10 million of what would have been Michael and Elizabeth's inheritance to the building and grounds of Remnant Fellowship. Gwen also donated Waydown Ministries and its proceeds, as well as her intellectual properties, over to the church. This was an incredible gift of generosity from Gwen in her family's inheritance, and the church would expect no more, unquote. I would argue this next character the most fascinating out of everyone I've talked about today, Anna March. Nancy Lott, her real name, was born in June 1968 and raised in Maryland with her Democratic political mom. She pled guilty in a case of campaign finance issues. She was a treasurer and had to pay back restitution of 18k, plus she had to get psychiatric help and spend five years on probation, which she never completed. Her outstanding fees had to be handed over after a judge ordered it. She would later write, quote, Did I sign a campaign finance report with erroneous information nearly 30 years ago when I was 21? Yes. Was I on five years probation and did I pay $18,000 in restitution? Yes. Unquote. In her late 20s, she married and divorced a man in New York and kept his last name, Cruz, K-R-U-S-E. It would later become part of one of her aliases. In the mid-90s, she went to San Diego and went by the name Delaney Anderson. Nancy Lott was no more. She then started work at a San Diego nonprofit called Writing Center. This organization, basically for writers, for aspiring writers, part tutoring center, part after-school club organization. She was so popular there, they loved her there. She came as a volunteer, but eventually they were so charmed by her that she was hired and, in 97, became its director. She also helped start Literary Lights, a fundraising event, and wowed them with her story of her mom working for the White House. There's no record confirming that was ever true. They thought the business was going so well, she painted quite a rosy picture of their financial state, as well as morale-wise. Maybe the morale thing was true, but the finances were not. She would later write, quote, Did I run a small, struggling, literary arts organization of two years, receiving a total of about $9,000 in compensation for the entire time? Yes, unquote. The Writing Center staff was shocked in 98 when they got an eviction notice. They held an emergency board meeting to find out what was going on. But when she never showed, they went to her boss's office and saw on the door a sign that said, I resign. The writing center had to shudder and all its furniture sold at a garage sale. It was a really sad fate, especially because the woman who had hired her and championed her from the beginning really did love this nonprofit's goal of fostering young writers. 
And she said she didn't legally or financially pursue her because, quote, I wasn't looking to make any money off of all of this. I wanted a community. It was my dream, unquote. This alter ego, Delaney Anderson, was no more by 2001 when she went to D.C. using the name Nancy Cruz. This is when she met and married Andrew Smith, a film historian, and got a job fundraising for a public radio station, WAMU. She started using WAMU as her first client, setting up her own consulting firm, Nancy Cruz and Partners. This grew to be a big online fundraising collective action group for 15 public radio stations. Cruz and Partners charmed people because, quote, she played up her Quaker background and her feminist beliefs. She said her mother was high up in the press office, that she was press secretary for Carter. Why wouldn't I believe her, unquote? To join this big online auction, each radio station paid her an upfront fee of anywhere from $8,700 to $68,400. By participating, they were expected to both recoup that cash and earn more from profits. Although her auction ended up bringing in over $677,000, she only distributed about $10,000 to 9 of the 15 stations. Apparently, mid-auction, Cruz and partners had a lawsuit filed against them. The landlord sued the office for five months' worth of back rent. By the time the judgment was filed against the company, she had fled once again. Cruz and partners shut down in 2005 and insisted in an email they had to not for legal reasons, but simply because they had no more assets. Six months later, a lawsuit was filed in D.C. by those radio stations, and they ended up winning over $380,000. Later on, in that big confession letter I've been quoting throughout, she would say that she was cleared of wrongdoing in this specific instance. Technically, wrongdoing was not the term being applied. So in a court of law, technically that wasn't true. That's not really what the case was about. It was more about the amount of restitution, basically, but that's an aside for now. Cruz started over again in Delaware, October 2005, once again charming locals with her stories. This time they were really amped up. She talked about all the famous faces who were her friends in the elite writer scene. She talked about attending the National Book Awards with Malcolm Gladwell and even claimed there was this picture of Gladwell there and she was there too, just missing the cutoff of the picture. She had just gotten cropped out. She had just been out of frame. She also said things like she got a personal call from Bob Dylan, a fan of her work. She got a Random House book deal, all sorts of stories. There was even this guy Kent Schoch, a local writer, who traveled to New Orleans with her on assignment for The New Yorker, only to realize when there, the assignment was totally fake, and he was left with the tab for that trip. When mounting questions just kept coming, by 2006, she left town again. This is when she became Anna March, after a few years of quiet. In 2011, she got back to writing. She had her first story published in Salon. Her and her boyfriend moved to Santa Barbara, then to the Melrose neighborhood. This boyfriend later realized all the lies she'd been keeping from him, but he's gone on the record saying he's just moved on, wants to focus on turning the page, and not hold ill will. Anna March, as she was now going by, announced a series of 11 writing workshops, one scheduled for Julia Child's home in France. What made the workshops kind of unusual was the low-entry barrier. 
Usually you need to do more to apply, like issue writing samples, but none of that was required. Just your money and then show up. These workshops did not cover travel expenses, although they did cover meals and hotel fees. The upfront fees ranged from $400 to $3,000. Many retreats ended up canceled, and a lot of people asked for refunds that never came. However, some people liked the ones that really happened. They really did feel transformed and thought she gave some solid writing advice. Two women actually felt so transformed, they split the cost for a $600 deposit on a retreat for Ireland set for the following year. Writing High by Fall 2016, Anna March launched Roar, an online feminist literary magazine. She raised money to keep it going via GoFundMe, around $49,000. This site as of recording time, not actively updated. She planned to host a workshop in April 2017 that eager participants went to Italy for, and they were already there on the ground in Italy when they found out it was getting called off and it never was planned. The hotel staff there were so confused. They were like, we have no workshop whatsoever on the itinerary. Nothing has been booked. What are you talking about? You're here for the retreat? What retreat? The event did get officially canceled two hours before it was going to start. That retreat she promised at Julia Child's home actually did happen, but she stranded the chef she had hired to cater the event, owing him $1,300 he did not get. Her response when he messaged her saying, when am I getting paid, was, quote, if you want to get into a public peeing match, I'll say, I do not, but if you do, just remember mine comes with pictures and videos. Pick someone else to be rude, bad boy too. I'm over it, unquote. In 2014, Anna March started writing for the Modern Love column in the New York Times when she had settled into Southern California, and she made her career writing about her relationship with her boyfriend, Adam. She definitely was not worried about letting that credential go to her head. She kept saying she had all these A-list writer friends, and some she truly did, who went to her special gala, Cheryl Strayed, Roxanne Gay, and she definitely had a habit of name-dropping. She really wooed California's literary scene, paying for their expensive dinners, getting to know them, really helping make them feel special, seeking out people who could, she could network with. She was really good at that. She held this really iconic, for better or for worse, A-list filled party in 2015 with over 400 guests. This was at the Ace Hotel in downtown LA. She seemed to navigate two worlds, the social world of people who went to places like that writing center, nonprofits who needed help to get resources to make their voices heard, versus very privileged, wealthy circles. And she somehow managed to thread the needle with her reputation as being a member of the elites and someone who is philanthropic and rising above struggles. The Ace Hotel party guests were asked to donate to a fundraiser. She offered a mixed bag of reasons why in her email. Sometimes she said taxes, other times she said she was dealing with a property sale windfall, sometimes she mentioned a medical condition, she talked about helping her mom financially. She set the goal of $9,000 and got donations of a little over 6000 Interestingly, in that email, she had a disclaimer, please keep this private. Don't post online about this. Don't spread the word. I just want donations from you select people. And some people were more than happy to give because she'd given plenty before in the past, not just picking up the tab for dinner, but other gifts too. After this party came the explosive bombshell report from the LA Times, reporting on all our past lives and pseudonyms. 
also revealing that some people had actually worked for her and were never paid back. So they would write for her site, for her work, they would help with ads, and they were never paid. She declined to comment when the LA Times reached her for comment, but then she posted about the incident at length online herself, which is what I have been quoting from repeatedly. Another part of that I haven't said yet, she said, quote, Mostly what I want to say is this. I have had successes and failures. I am proud of trying to make things work. I regret my shortcomings and failures and apologize for my mistakes. I have never run from them or hidden them. In fact, I've tried to be open about them, unquote. She moved back to Delaware. She tried to host a local event there, get back in the game with that networking, but she canceled the event. She continues to say she has several book deals in the works. In the theme running throughout this episode, she honestly might not be lying anymore. She may have faked it till she made it, and now book deals are calling. Fake hype turns into real hype. The last heard of her is that she is offering private manuscript consultations for anywhere from $1,600 to $3,000. She also offers coaching sessions for people preparing their writing for literary agents. I left this story for last for a reason because I think it's really interesting how it's summed up by a participant who wrote about her time at that Julia Child's house retreat. She said, quote, The cost of my week had been money well spent. In fact, I couldn't entirely let go of the notion that my time with Anna, even though she was an alleged grifter, had somehow been valuable. I wasn't alone. Every woman who attended was going through an interesting life crossroads, and it was wonderful to witness everyone's unique story and help them form their thoughts into words. All of us were there because we wanted to learn how to be better storytellers. We may have spent money in a workshop with a woman who wasn't who she claimed to be, but the five days we spent with Anna March in Julia Child's house have given us a story of intrigue, deception, and false identity we couldn't have invented if we tried." Unquote. This was a Caroline Calloway parallel, too, where people who went to her workshops were underwhelmed, but they still don't regret going, and they had a good time. And so does it bother them? They were lied to, or at least misled? Yeah, but would that stop them from trying to get a service or a product? Sometimes yes, but sometimes no. Which is really interesting and brings me to my bottom line. What this episode, I think, helps shed a light on when it comes to scammy behavior. It may not matter. Faking it till you make it is a real thing. People have done it. And the extent to which people mislead people is a very interesting, ethically murky thing. Because in some situations here, it's just flat out wrong. I mean, money laundering with your followers? Obviously, I'm not defending that. But then there are times that are more of a middle ground, a gray area of ethics, because you have people like Anna March, true writers who spoke as if they really were passionate writers, trying to make something of themselves in the writing, trying to get this fame for maybe the right reasons, but they go about it the wrong way. In those instances, it's just fascinating to me the question of should we forgive and forget? Maybe forgive but not forget. Is that possible? If Anna March, or whoever she claims to be that day, delivers for you, but not for other clients, do you still support her financially, with your social media, attention, whatever? If she benefits you personally, gives you gifts, or gives you advice, and you have a good time at a workshop, but it's overpriced, do you view her as a total scam? Probably not. So I think scammer stories are so interesting because they force people in a time that lacks nuance to question the middle ground in what they go through. 
Scammer stories intrigue because there aren't clear-cut heroes and villains, and the scammer, more often than you realize, is a complex person, just like you, and not a total villain or a total caricature of a hero either. So to look at their motives and how some might be pure, some might not be, but to really try to understand who they are and what motivated them to be scammers, just something worth thinking about because I do think there is a way to hold scammers to account without a discount, without discounting them, without saying they're just flat out a fraudster, they're awful, never ever trust them. Maybe you shouldn't, but it's just very interesting to me how hard it is to nail exactly how to describe this type of grifter. Because sometimes grifters deliver, and so can you just avoid them all your life? I don't know. Would you want to? Can you accept a product or service knowing it was given to you under made-up pretenses? Is the allure of that product or service severable from the person behind it? Like Uba Butler said, are they even famous or is what they do famous? And therefore, can you enjoy what they offer while criticizing the person? And I don't know, and these moral ambiguities fascinate me. So to try to understand who scammers are fully, not just as characters, that intrigues me. That's kind of what I hope to prompt you to start wondering and thinking about with this introduction to their stories. I hope this was interesting. Thank you all for tuning in today. And I will talk to you all again very soon. Bye, everybody.